So we all have uh, what we might call turning points in our lives, don't we? These, these often the, the big moments, the really important things in our lives that we celebrate would never have happened were it not for some small, seemingly unconnected possibly sort of thing that happened in an unknown kind of out of the way moment or place in our lives. I remember one really interesting one in my own life. It was the summer prior to my grade 11 year of high school. It was probably late August. School was just about set to start as I remember this. And I got a call from my pastor. And you have to understand, I, I went to a small rural church, so we only had one pastor. And you also have to understand that he was from England. And so he called, and I don't think I answered the phone. I think one of my parents answered the phone and gave it to me. And, and he identified himself. I'm like, who else is going to be calling me that sounds like you? But he always did that. It was kind of quaint. His accent was a dead giveaway. And so he explained to me that there was going to be somebody in our congregation who would like to start a Bible quizzing program. He explained something of what that entailed, uh, as he understood it, as it had been described to him. And then he said that because it was a new thing, he needed to find somebody amongst our youth who would be kind of a leader who could kind of sell it to the rest of, of the kids. That's what he needed me for. And I kind of did that, you know, look over the shoulder to see if the person isn't talking to someone behind you sort of thing. I'm like, you need a leader. Um, oh, you are, you are talking to me. Oh, okay. I kind of thought, actually, to be 100% honest, that it sounded kind of lame, actually. Uh, and I really had no interest in it. However, more or less out of respect for my pastor than anything else, I said I'd give it a go. And that year turned out to be a transformational year in the fullest sense of the word. I wasn't exactly a rebellious teenager or anything, but like many kids that grew up in the church, I'd kind of fallen into the trap that so many high school students find them in, and having, you know, the, the Sunday version of who you are, and then the rest of the week, school friends, Monday to Saturday version of who you are. But memorizing scripture and forming strong relationships with other so other Christian friends began to change how I felt about my faith, and God, in the power of His Holy Spirit, began to get a hold of my life. And in the, the truest sense of the word, I would say I had a real spiritual awakening. My, my faith came alive in a way that it had never been before. But it all uh, depended on that one phone call, this tiny little choice I had to make there, two or three minute conversation. I, what if I had said, no thanks, I'm going to pick up some more hours at my part-time job at the shop, or no thanks, I'm involved in school sports too much, or no thanks, I'm just not interested. I, I can't say for sure. I, in some sense, I believe if God really wants to get a hold of us, he'll, he'll do so, but I don't know. Just judging by how things went, I, I can't say with any confidence that I would be here today had I made that choice in that little phone call. Of course, there are bigger moments, too, than what just happens in our lives individually. And 
if you look back on how history has gone, history is full of these, these small moments, right? What if, what if Gabriela Princip's bullet had missed Archduke Franz Ferdinand that day in Sarajevo? Would World War I have ever started and the whole world got caught up in it? We, we'll never know, of course, and people love speculating about these things. We'll just never know. Today, though, we look at what is probably the turning point in the history of our planet, at least as far as the story of God's dealings with humanity is concerned. And, uh, like many turning points in our lives, it happened in an out-of-the-way place and relatively out of sight. And I was just going to say, I, I think sometimes all the Renaissance paintings lead us a little bit astray in uh, what Mary might have looked like. I, I can imagine Mary in a toque. <laughs> Read to us from God's word, Bella. During Elizabeth's six month of pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazar Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin. She is, was engaged to marry a man named Joseph from the family of David. Her name was Mary. The angel came to her and said, Greetings, the Lord has blessed you and is with you. But Mary was very startled by what the angel said and wondered what this greeting might mean. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary. God has shown you his grace. Listen, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of the King of David, his ancestor. He will rule over the people of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Mary said to the angel, How will this happen, since I am a virgin? The angel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will cover you. For this reason, the baby will be holy, and will be called the Son of God. Now, Elizabeth, your relative, is also pregnant with a son, though she was though she is very old. Everyone thought she could not have a baby, but she has been pregnant for six months. God can do anything. Mary said, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me as you say. Then the angel went away. This is the word of the Lord. So like so many of the great turning points connected to major events, this one happened behind the scenes. It happened in a little backwater town called Nazareth, which wasn't even in Israel proper. That is to say, the, the southern portion of the kingdom, Judea, it was up north in Galilee. It happens to a young woman, probably a, a teenage girl, who seems to be nobody special. Mary, or Miriam, was likely the most common girl's name at this point in, in their, their country. Uh, she's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who we learn later on is a carpenter or a builder. Very, from all we can tell, average people. We're given no real reason why God chose Mary. I mean, centuries of Christian tradition have grown up around this and, and tried to speculate about that, but Scripture really says very little, which is kind of interesting given St. Luke's tendency to explain backstories, right? With Zechariah and Elizabeth, we hear, well, Zechariah was a priest and, and Elizabeth was from a priestly family and they were, they were very righteous people and he was on duty at the temple, on and on 
Luke's prologue there kind of goes, but when we get to Mary, it's just the angel Gabriel showed up, girl named Mary, that's all, that's all we know. However, like many before her, Mary has found favor or grace, depending on your translation of the Bible, with the Lord. In other words, it, it really and truly has very little to do with whatever she did to deserve this, and it has everything to do with God's choice of her to be the one through whom his purposes for this world would be fulfilled. Working class, blue collar, nobody special, unremarkable. And that in itself is really pretty remarkable. God chose her. I love how C.S. Lewis put it so eloquently in his book, Miracles. He said, to be quite frank, we do not at all like the idea of a chosen people. Democrats by birth and education, we should prefer to think that all nations and individuals start level in the search for God, or even that all religions are equally true. It must be admitted at once that Christianity makes no concessions to this point of view. It does not tell of a human search for God at all, but of something done by God for, to, and about man. And the way in which it is done is selective, undemocratic to the highest degree. After the knowledge of God had been universally lost or obscured, one man from the whole earth, Abraham, and we've just, we've just looked at his story, is picked out. He is separated, miserably enough, we may suppose, from his natural surroundings, sent into a strange country and made the ancestor of a nation who are to carry the knowledge of the true God. Within this nation, there is further selection. Some die in the desert. Some remain behind in Babylon. There is further selection still. The process grows narrower and narrower, sharpens at last into one small bright point like the head of a spear. It is a Jewish girl at her prayers. All humanity, so far as concerns its redemption, has narrowed to that. Everything that's happened so far in Scripture, and indeed everything that had happened on this planet up until that moment, had narrowed and narrowed and narrowed until we got to this turning point. Now, as I said last week when we looked at, at Zechariah and his visit from the angel Gabriel, a, a visit from a, a being from another realm is, is bound to be startling and even scary. But again, I think the encouragement to fear not goes deeper than just that. There are some pretty deep things at play here that we need to be aware of. So what are those things? Well, the angel, two times in this short little passage, assures Mary that she has found favor with God. She is in a place of God's favor, his grace, his blessing. In his initial greeting, and immediately following the reassurance, fear not, the angel makes this clear to her and says, you are highly favored, you have found favor with God. As we unpack this, one, one major theme to note, though, from all of this is that the message that the angel is going to deliver to Mary and the consequences and implications of that are going to make it seem like she is anything but in a place of favor by the Lord. She's been selected with no apparent reason given for the greatest honor anyone could ever be given to, to bear the Son of God. And yet the means of that will implicate her in one of the greatest dishonors imaginable in her culture and in, in many 
other cultures, she will be pregnant out of wedlock. Now let, let's just review the facts and, and talk a little bit about how things were at this time and place. So Mary is engaged, or, or more accurately, we might say betrothed to Joseph. So this would be a stronger bond uh, than what we would typically call engagement in our culture. Uh, betrothal was more or less as legally binding as marriage, and it did require divorce to break it. Of course, the one stipulation was that the couple was not to have sexual relations until they were properly and finally married. And of course, by saying yes to God's choice of her, this is the one thing that she is going to be, from all appearances, breaking. Now, essentially, there are, are three possible options of how this could go for her. She might be telling the truth. And Elizabeth, once we get into the next portion of Luke's Gospel, if you want to read that later, Elizabeth seems to believe her without question. But of course, she and Zechariah have had some pretty miraculous and kind of wild stuff happen to them. So she's in a place to believe Mary's story, but not a lot of people are likely to do that. It's pretty hard to believe when there's been really nothing happening for God's people for hundreds of years that an angel just happened to drop in and announce that she was going to conceive a child by the direct intervention from God. So that's not going to be what most people are likely to believe. There's just no precedent for it. Option two... She might be lying, and she might just be covering for the fact that she and Joseph have been sleeping together. That would be problematic, of course, but it would at least be believable. They could probably do what most couples, many couples have done throughout history and just get married right away, shotgun or no shotgun. Everything probably would have been okay. Except Mary, as we learn throughout the story, doesn't seem willing to tell that lie. And at least initially, neither does Joseph. And we'll look at Joseph's side of the story a little bit more next week. Of course, the third option, and that's what most people are going to be likely to believe in this situation, if she's not willing to say that Joseph is the father, and if Joseph is not willing to say that he's the father, then the only other option in the mind of most people is that another man is the father. And furthermore, uh, if she's not willing to accuse another man of raping her, which she could... Deuteronomy 22 clearly lays out how that could happen if a man forced himself on her uh, out in the field, for instance, and she cried out for help and nobody came to deliver her. She is innocent and whoever did this to her is guilty and they should stone him according to the law. But from what we learn in the subsequent story, it didn't seem that Mary was willing to take that option either, either to accuse somebody or to say she didn't get a good look at him or it was somebody she didn't know even though she could have been innocent if she was willing to do that. So, if she's not willing to do that, and there is another man, and she's taken a lover, uh, the law says kill them both. Stone them. So, of all the people in the Advent story, Mary has the most to lose if she says yes to what the Lord is going to do in her, literally to do in her, to conceive this child miraculously. She stands to lose everything. And even as the angel is telling her all of this, surely this is going to start, the wheels are turning. What's she going to do? How is this going to happen? What is this going to mean? Mary has every reason to be terrified. It would seem as though being right in the very center 
of God's purpose, not just for her, God's purposes for the whole world and everything he's been doing up until now, like narrowing and narrowing to that little point of the spear, and there she is in the center of his good purposes and his grace and his blessing for all humanity. It doesn't seem like it's going to play out, as you might expect, being right in the very center of God's grace. Frequently in Advent, I I read this short little meditation by Frederick Buchner on the Annunciation. She struck the angel Gabriel as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he'd he'd been entrusted with a message to give her, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named and who he was to be and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. As he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath the great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation hung now on the answer of a girl. What if she said no? Was there a plan B? Did God have something else? We, like most of these what-if questions, we simply don't know. And just like we have no explanation for why God chose Mary, we have really no explanation of why she said yes. I think any normal person would have run from such an announcement. Any normal person in her situation would have thrown words like highly favored right back at the angel Gabriel, I would think, because they certainly sound like anything but what he was asking of her. But she said yes even though it meant tremendous risk to her. Even though it was plain that being in the very center of God's gracious purposes for her and for all creation was going to look and feel anything but what she might naturally have expected. Mary said yes. Mary went to the wall for God on this one. That's not, of course, to say that she wasn't afraid. She must have been terrified. But she did it anyhow, and that's the thing. However, in order to make this more than just a character sketch, even of one of the most important characters of all time, it's important to look a bit more deeply at the angel's message, that he told her something of how this would happen and who the child would be. It's one thing to say, don't be afraid, and it's another to provide some solid reasons not to be. And it's even another to have some tangible assurance and help when things are scary. And they're there in the angel's very short little message about who her child was going to be. And of course for Mary and for all of us, that tangible assurance was the child that she was going to carry. And while who Jesus was going to be just didn't automatically take away all the hardships she was going to have to face, it did provide her with something real to hold on to. So the first point, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Jesus was going to be powerful. He was going to be the Son of God. There was an important sense in which Son of God could be a title for Israel's king, or a title for their long-awaited and expected Messiah. However, I can't help but think that given this supernatural and unprecedented conception and birth, Mary would have understood it to mean a little bit more than that, right? 
even though we would be wrong to see this in, in sexual terms, God was literally going to be the father of this child in the absence of any human father. He was going to do what miraculously needed to happen to conceive this child inside of her. So this means that Jesus is going to be very powerful. He's, he's the son of God. More powerful than the hard circumstances that Mary is going to find herself in. More powerful even than people's opinions of her. More powerful even than what they might do to her. Second thing, he will reign on David's throne, the angel says. Not only will Jesus be powerful, he will have authority to exercise that power. We might think, well, of course he has authority. He's the son of God. Yes, but he also has practical or tangible authority, not just abstract or, or theoretical authority. Jesus has this sort of authority because he's going to fulfill God's ancient promises to Israel and specifically to King David, made way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll say more about that in just a moment. So it's not just that Jesus will rule, it's also that he will have the right to rule. Now that might not mean as much to us who are, who are Gentiles, and that's probably most if not all of us, but here's the thing. Jesus was God's king for God's people Israel by birth. He would become king for all of us by conquest. His whole mission in coming here was to defeat sin and death and the power of evil and become king for all people by rescuing us all from the bondage that sin had placed all of us in. We'll say a little bit more about that when we look next week at Joseph's side of the story. And the, he, Joseph has a very similar message from the angel to what Mary has, but some additional and important details. Third thing, his kingdom will never end. So not only is Jesus to be powerful, not only does he have the right to rule, he will exercise that right forever. And this in many ways is it's the whole longing, ancient longing of God's people. Think about it. Whenever Israel, or to be strictly accurate, more often Judah, would finally have a good king. A king would come along, the Lord would raise up somebody, he... We get this refrain, right? The occasional good king. He did like his father David did. He loved the Lord. He, he got rid of idolatry. He led God's people in the way that was good. He would do that for all. We think of uh, King Hezekiah and, and Josiah and a few of the other really good kings. And there weren't that many of them. But they'd do good. They'd accomplish some good things. They'd turn people back to the Lord. They would reign for however long, sometimes quite a long time. But what would invariably happen, that, that refrain, that formula would end with, and when he was this old, he died, he rested with his ancestors, and usually what follows is there arose another king who didn't know the Lord and did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Whenever things would go well for God's people, it would only be temporary. Even the best of Israel's kings were limited in what they could accomplish for God's people because they would only reign for a short time. And then someone else would come along and lead the people astray. But even from the ancient days of King David, God had promised that it would not always be so. God had promised that one day a king would come who would rule in complete faithfulness to God's laws. In complete justice and compassion for God's people. And that his reign would last forever. Forever. 
And this, this lack of forever, coupled with the, the longing for it, and maybe even more so the promise of it that we don't see yet, that's one of the, the primal aches of the human soul, isn't it? Even the, the best of life is, is tainted by, by its passing away. Things and experiences, people. I know, uh, especially at this time of year, that can be a challenge. I've, my own family has had loss at this time of year. We've prayed for and will continue to pray for the Frost Ads. Think of uh, Valerie Fair and the loss of her mom just recently. Um, but over and against all of that, and the reality of it all, and even in the midst of it all, the Advent story calls us into a kingdom that is eternal and will not pass away because the king who rules over that kingdom will be eternal. And finally, this isn't specifically to do with who Jesus would be, but this sums up the angel Gabriel's whole message to Mary. Her message concludes much as the previous two Advent texts that we looked at. Isaiah 40 reminds us that God's promises are dependable because, and this is a big refrain in Isaiah, the mouth of the Lord has spoken it, and also the word of our God will endure forever. Gabriel's message to Zechariah assures us that his promises will come to pass because God's words will come true at their appointed time. Gabriel's message to Mary assures us that his promises are good even in the most unlikely of circumstances because no word from God will ever fail, the text says. All this stuff about a mighty savior who will bring a kingdom of righteousness and peace that will never end, it's not just kind of wimpy nostalgia that we, that we bring up again and again at this season year after year. It's not just idle dreaming that's never going to find fulfillment. And it's not just wishful thinking. What we heard about today was the culmination of 2,000 years of God's leading his people. 2,000 years from Abraham through Moses and King David. The exile and the return from that. Like C.S. Lewis said in that quote, God working narrowing his purposes down and down and down until it got to this one specific moment at a specific time and place, one specific teenage girl who is called to bear God's son. And if he can do that, control 2,000 years of history to bring it about, and we can read the record of it, it's there in the scriptures, then he's not just making an idle boast when he said, who this child is going to be. This has already been kind of a long conclusion, but I just want to think about one more thing before we go. Mary was willing to say yes to God. She was willing to say yes and be the Lord's servant, even though it meant tremendous risk, likely hardship to herself. So I ask all of us, are there things we need to say yes to even if they're hard. And, and let me be clear, we're, we're naturally, I think many of us, when we talk that way, we naturally rush toward things that we think we should do for God. And maybe some of us are thinking ahead to the new year when it comes and saying, okay, I need to, I need to read my Bible more. I'm going to read the whole Bible in one year. Or 
or we think about, oh, I don't know, praying more or, or starting some kind of a ministry or going on a missions trip or all those sorts of things. Tell some friends about Jesus. By all means, do those things. Those are wonderful things to do. But I wonder more deeply what it might mean to say yes to the thing God wants to do for us or to us or in us more accurately. For Mary, of course, the new life that God wanted to form in her it was literal and biological as Jesus, as an infant, began to form inside of her. But I believe there are new things that God wants to form and grow in all of us. And it might be far from easy or comfortable, but it will be good. So we're going to celebrate communion in, in just a few moments. There's something in all of that which connects deeply with our text for today. Mary was favored to have the, the literal, actual life of Christ growing inside of her body. In the Lord's Supper, we have, we have symbols of the life of, and death and resurrection and the coming again of Christ, which we also will take into our bodies. It's a symbol. As all symbols are, it's, it's profound and mysterious. However, as you partake, for some of you at least, feeding on these symbols, actually feeling them inside your mouth and, and going down your throat, maybe that for you will be an act of prayer and an act of acceptance of the new life or the new thing that God wants and even longs to do in your life, in your heart, in your soul.